You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the tragic fire-related death of 50-year-old matriarch Marlene Edwards in her own Michigan family home. It came to light that the fire was intentional, and the person responsible for her murder was her own husband of 25 years. Marlene's murder and her husband's subsequent arrest splintered the family. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder of My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Marlene Edwards was born in Detroit, Michigan on May 24, 1935, as Marlene Helen Finley, to William R. Finley and Sarah Cullen. She attended and graduated from St. Mary's of Redford Catholic School, going on to study business at the University of Detroit. On November 26, 1960, she and James Edwards were married. Marlene worked at Ford until her oldest daughter, Lisa, was born in 1968, after almost a decade of marriage. Their second daughter, Michelle, was born in 1970. Both Mary and James worked to support their family, a family that seemed like almost any other family in the neighborhood, but things weren't as perfect as they seemed. 
James was given to fits of rage, which was fueled by alcohol, and often took his anger out on the family, both verbally and physically, something he had done for almost a decade to Marlene prior to their daughters being born. It was a volatile atmosphere in the Edwards home due to James's Jekyll and Hyde personality. His family never knew what each day would bring, often fearing that one day the violence would reach a point of no return. And that's just what happened. Just a month shy of Marlene and James's 25th anniversary, on October 14, 1985, 50-year-old Marlene Edwards was found dead in the family room of her home in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Her body had been burned beyond recognition. 56-year-old James told the police that he had been making dinner that night, meatloaf, which was Marlene's favorite food for dinner, but that he had to head out and do some errands. He said that Marlene had come home angry that day, leaving her job early at the Monian Insurance Company in Troy, about a half hour away. According to James, she headed in for a glass of wine and was smoking a cigarette as he walked out the door to run his errands. He went to two local stores. When he returned to his Ronswood Street home after about an hour of shopping, the house was on fire and Marlene was inside. James tried to go inside and call the fire department, but the flames and smoke were too bad, so he ran back out to the driveway where he found his neighbor. In total, the fire caused $200,000 in property damage to the $250,000 home that Marlene and James had designed together along with their daughters. The medical examiner initially ruled that Marlene had died from heart disease. It seemed that Marlene had died of natural causes while smoking, which led to a fire breaking out in their home when her cigarette dropped. And this fit in with what James had told investigators, saying that Marlene was upset, smoking a cigarette, and drinking alone. But investigators didn't believe that Marlene had died a natural death, and they didn't think that the cigarette had caused the fire. Instead, they believed that she had been stabbed or strangled to death and that the fire was an arson, intended to cover up Marlene's true cause of death and destroy any evidence. The fire's intended purpose almost worked, and her body was severely damaged from the flames. Farmington Hills Police Sergeant Darnell Cross found that an accelerant had been used to start the fire. Three neighbors recalled that James left just before the fire started. Another neighbor, the one James said he saw in the driveway after he came out of the burning house, said that he actually saw James come home from shopping, not come out from the burning house. In January 1986, James Edward was charged with the second-degree murder of his wife, Marlene, and he also faced arson-related charges for the fire itself. In July 1986, Marlene's body was exhumed, and a third autopsy was performed. James's trial began two years later, in January 1988, and lasted five weeks. Statements that James had threatened to burn the house down before, and that he told Marlene he wanted her to die, were unbelievably ruled inadmissible in court. During his trial, James testified that he and Marlene were in a partnership, and he cried on the stand. He also claimed that Marlene hadn't been feeling well in the days before she had died, that she had been experiencing chest pains and had stayed in bed all day on October 13th. Despite his pleas of innocence, James Edwards was found guilty of murdering his wife Marlene. He was free on $5,000 cash bond prior to sentencing until late February 1988 when the judge revoked the bond and James was taken into custody. The jury foreman believed that James cared more about the damage to his property and about saving his cars from the fire than he did about the loss of his wife or trying to help save her. James lived the rest of his days in prison, never showing remorse for what he had done, for murdering his wife and partner who he had spent 25 years with. 
and for splintering his family, leaving his teenage daughters to an uncertain future. James Edwards passed away on July 3, 1997, never owning up to what he had done. Marlene's daughter Michelle, who goes by Shelley, published a book about this family ordeal. The book, Beautiful Ashes, is a true story of murder, betrayal, and one woman's search for peace. In this book, Shelley Edwards Jorgensen outlines her quest to uncover family secrets and to survive the truth after her mother's death when she was just 15 years old. Shelley showed incredible courage and a tenacity that she still shows today in telling her mother's story. Beautiful Ashes is available for pre-order now on Amazon, and it'll be available for general purchase in April 2022. Shelley sat down to talk with me about the heartbreaking murder of her mother at the hands of her own father. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, it's hard to believe, but summer's over. Now we're officially in fall. But just because the season's changed doesn't mean that things that have been weighing on us suddenly disappear. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, I'm happy to tell you there's help. And that help is BetterHelp. BetterHelp online counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from anxiety, depression, and grief, to sleep issues, LGBT matters, and family conflicts, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. I want to tell you about our sponsor, My Favorite Meal Kit Delivery Service, EveryPlate. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. The holidays are upon us. Give yourself and your wallet a break. Enjoy delicious, affordable meals delivered to your door and ready to go in just six simple steps. EveryPlate is 50% cheaper than a meal made from grocery store ingredients. So now's the perfect time to focus on saving money easily. Meal planning can feel like one more item on an endless to-do list. EveryPlate provides easy-to-follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients, so you can spend less time prepping and cooking and more time enjoying good food with family or loved ones. Let EveryPlate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a delightful price. When I first tried EveryPlate, I was skeptical that you could get a great-tasting meal delivered right to your door without being expensive. But now I'm convinced you can get the same deliciousness at a much lower price than other meal kit delivery services. My family and I recently enjoyed the honey balsamic chicken and the hotel butter steak. Both meals tasted great and came together in no time, which is especially great after a long day at work. Right now, my listeners can try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY179. Once again, get started with every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY179. Don't wait. That's up to $104 value. Try every plate today. Hi, Shelley. Thanks for coming on to discuss your mom, Marlene's case with us today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Your case is tragic and 
multiple ways. You lost more than one parent, really, when this tragedy happened. And we'll get into the details about that. Before we do, can you talk about your mom a little bit, maybe share some of your memories of her? Sure. Um, my mom was, she was, uh, well, first of all, she had the brightest smile. She just, she just was, she was a very um, charismatic person. She was, um, she was very beautiful and uh, she had a ton of friends, like everywhere we went, she knew people. And, um, she, my sister and I were three sport athletes our whole life. Like I started playing organized athletics at six years old. I started playing softball and then I started playing basketball in the fourth grade. And then I started playing volleyball in the sixth grade and track. And so, you know, I, we, and my sister was into the same things as me and she was two years older and my mom somehow was able to work full time and and juggle our schedules and never miss anything. She was at every game, every event we were ever in and uh, and you, you know she 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 loved um big handbags and fa- and fancy shoes. And so she would be at the softball diamond wearing high heel shoes. And in her purse, she always had, you know, all the supplies that you would need um, for an emergency. I had a, um, <laughs> I, I was playing softball. This was in high school. And um, I played third base and I, I fielded a ball and I, I threw the ball to, to first. And as I threw the ball to first, my bra um, strap broke. <laughs> And I was on the field and I was horrified, you know, because I think I was a freshman at the time. And, and of course, my mom had a bobby pin or a, a safety pin to, to fix it when I came off the field. And so she just was, you know, that kind of person. I mean, uh, at her, at her funeral, there was standing room only. And that was because of her and who she was. So it sounds like she really did a, a great job of, of juggling a lot of stuff and, and making sure she was there for you. And it uh, sounds like she was really prepared too. Definitely. I mean, always, always, we were always prepared, which, which is kind of ironic. I mean, how, uh, to, to talk about preparedness, uh, I, you know, my mom grew up, I, my mom grew up in the, depression or just uh just outside the depression and um she was she was frugal you you wouldn't know it by our house or our um or how we lived because we lived in a very affluent uh upper middle class neighborhood and uh and that sort of thing but my mom wouldn't buy anything unless it was on sale and unless she and we would even go to the farmer's um, uh, market in de- downtown Detroit. Uh, it's called Eastern Market. We would we would go down there on Saturdays, and they, the farmers would bring in their produce. And my mom always negotiated, you know, uh, a baker's dozen for a dollar instead of instead of just a dozen for a dollar. You know, just just a little extra thing. She was super frugal, but 
you know, and, and, and always prepared for, for any kind of event except for the event that actually happened. <laughs> Interesting, the things, the little quirks and the little personality traits that you remember about someone you care about so long uh, after they're gone. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it's been 36 years for me, but I remember um, all these things. I remember the day that it happened like it was yesterday, and um, and I remember these things about my mom because that's what I have. I even lost all my pictures. I, I have a handful of pictures and that's it so so yeah it's important to remember your family life growing up it was just the four of you is that correct yes yep um my my older sister lisa and me and my mom and dad but what was home life like what was your family life like growing up it was picture perfect some days and a nightmare other days it uh it, it really was a dr jekyll mr hyde um personality in my dad and you know we i mentioned we you know we we had a actually a custom designed built by hand by my parents and i and my sister home my my dad um was a, a designer for for Ford, and so he did drafting and stuff and, and designed cars. But what his real passion was, was architecture. And um, he would draw and sketch, you know, floor plans just for fun. And as a family, I remember going on, you know, Sunday afternoon drives to go look at model homes just for fun because my my mom liked interior design and my dad liked architecture and my sister and I would just run around crazy in these beautiful homes. And, um, that would be Sunday that might've followed a, a Friday that my parents got, had gone to a party and, and, and he had gotten drunk and he tried to kill my mother. I mean, that's just how black, black and white different things were. I mean, literally, I called them the Sunday, the Sunday morning breakfast because um, Saturday night my dad could have been trying to strangle my mother and and threaten to kill us and burn the house down, which he started doing from the time I was um, six years old. I remembered him threatening to kill us all and burn the house down and and um and us even fleeing the home that time and uh uh then the next morning uh, you know the dust would settle and literally my dad would be up cooking this big huge you know beautiful sunday breakfast with uh bacon and eggs and ha homemade um hash browns and um you know the whole this whole spread and you couldn't you didn't say a word it was like nothing happened ever it was you just went on in life 
So you you learn to um, accept abuse as part of life, and you didn't know that you, oh you don't know that you're different from your neighbors when you're a child. I mean, as you age, you start figuring it out, but by that time you're living in this facade and in this pattern and the secret is so deep that you don't utter a word and and you really you lose your voice or you you never gain a voice as a child to begin with and so that's kind of you know what it was like i mean there was horrific horrific times where you know my dad would be trying to kill my mother and my sister and I would be pounding on him and and um uh then we'd break it up and um when I was younger my sister would just send me to my room and I would just be scared and huddled behind a door but as I got older you know we would break it up and it seemed like my sister and I would always retreat to the master bedroom with my mother and in the master bedroom, uh, there was a, a green armchair and with a little side table. And I just remember my mom would sit in that chair and my sister and I would sit at her feet. And, um, and my mom would say, well, girls, you know, should I get a divorce? And mind you, my parents were married for 10 years before I was born in eight years before my sister was born and the abuse started at the beginning. So this was in the new thing. And I, now I'm talking about memories when I'm around 10 years old. So, you know, my mom is 20 years into this marriage and she's been abused um, since day one um, severely. Like the very first incident that I know about um, my it was six months after my parents were married and my dad drug my mom down a flight of stairs by the hair naked into the street and left her in the gutter. And uh, why she didn't leave is, is a whole nother question that, that um, we could talk hours about, but um, it's a lot more complicated than people think. So so anyway, back to, to to what I was saying is that, you know, uh, about at, at about 10 years old, I remember having these conversations with my mother, uh, her sitting in this green barn chair and my sister and I sitting on the floor, all of us crying. My mom, you know, talking about us leaving and, and, you know, financially it would be a blow, but my mom was working full time at the time and which was an you know anomaly kind of at the time this was the 80s early late 70s at this time early 80s and um my sister and I, I remember I only had one friend who had divorced parents and you know I didn't want that and I don't know why I didn't want that but I remember my sister and I begging my mom not to leave my dad and telling her, Mom, we will be here to protect you. And her telling us, girls, one of these days, you're not going to be here and he's going to kill me. Well, that's exactly what happened. So on top of 
the horror of dealing with murder and and arson at the hand of your father. We, my sister and I had this tremendous amount of guilt that we had to try to get past as well because we felt responsible ourselves. Wow, that's a, a terrible thing to have to go through as, as young kids to have to witness all this and deal with it. And on um, kids, for whatever reason, for better or for worse, they always seem to want to think the best in their parents, even when it's a, a bad situation. So it sounds like on one hand, you knew what was going on, but at the same time, you had some kind of want to keep the family together. And that sounds like a real struggle for you. Yeah, it, it definitely was. It was It was definitely, um, you know, this, I loved both my parents. I, I actually still love both my parents. I hate what my father did, but I still love him. And um, it's very hard to explain because it would be very, very easy for for me just to to hate him. But I, I've learned that, you know, that some of his issues um, are caused from generational trauma and um, PTSD from being in the Korean War and he inherited his his violence from his father, who was the same way as him, and his alcoholism came from his father as well. And you know, uh, and then my grandfather was was orphaned at five. So, I mean, you just you don't know where the accountability really begins, and so you start when you start to. For me, at least, when I started to forgive my dad, um, I had to look at um, him as as God would look at him, really, and say, okay, you did these horrible things. What, what, what made you capable of doing these horrible things? And so, not that it excuses uses the behavior it just explains behavior which helps you move past only seeing that part of him you know because I have memories of a one of the things I'm I'm an engineer by um, trade I I love woodworking I I can do any home improvement project and I've done just I just about anything I could build a house myself and that all comes from my dad and I love those things about about him that he taught me. I mean, he taught me how to how to wire an outlet when I was six years old. I mean, uh, you know, there was no power to the outlet, but he showed me where how to strip the wire and how to hook it to the outlet. I mean, really cool things I learned as a as a child, and that was when he was Doctor Jekyll and not Mister Hyde. Oh, it was hard to to try to choose between you have on one hand this loving dad sometimes and this monster the other time. 
but it causes you to have to walk on eggshells and live in fear all the time. Yeah, that's a a lot for anyone, I guess, especially younger people to have to deal with that. And and I think you hit the nail right on the head that there's different sides to people that good or bad, you know, you have to sort of account for both of those sides. You mentioned some of that, the good stuff was passed on to you, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I love, there, there's several things that I love because of my dad and, you know, designing and building things. I worked as a, I worked as an architect, well, in an architectural office while I was getting my engineering degree. I wanted to be an architect more than I wanted to be an engineer, but my mom wanted me to be an engineer because she knew that the work was more stable than in architecture. And she was right, and I did the right thing, but I, I still love architecture, and I, and I, um, I do crazy, uh, silly things like uh, we, we bought a cottage a few years back, and um, I, I was in the place. It's a simple floor plan. I was in the place once, and I, I had the, uh, the rough dimensions, and I literally drew a scale drawing of the house so I could plan where I was going to put the furniture. I mean, I do silly, stupid stuff like that. And I know I get that from my dad and that's that, you know, that's something quirky and fun, but, uh, you know, I definitely, I decided at 16 years old that I was never going to drink alcohol again because of my dad as well. And I haven't. So, Oh, you know, there's, there's two, you have to take the good with the bad, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And let's go back to that fateful day in October 1985. I was 15, four in high school, and and Lisa was um, 17. She was a senior. So basically, well, I'll, I'll tell you from the beginning. Um, basically, the um, Lisa had a special, I mean, this is the 80s, so there wasn't like super duper computers. I mean, there was still typing class, right? So Lisa had this um, advanced office procedures class that was offered at a sister high school in our city. And they usually um, took the bus over to the high school. And then during second hour, they would take the bus back to our high school. And, you know, that was uh, the first two hours of their day for them was at this special um advanced class. So my grandma was out of town. So my sister had my grandma's car and she drove to class. And on the way back, because they have extra time, her and two friends from class stopped at a party store that was between the two schools. Well, the two other girls with my sister decided that they were going to shoplift beer. (laughs) You know, they're they're all 17 years old, so they can't buy it. So they get caught, and they all get arrested and hauled to the police station. Well, the rumors 
started floating around school and I kind of heard on and off that my sister had been arrested, but I didn't know anything. Well, Lisa was back at school in the afternoon, but I didn't see her and um, she stayed um, for her varsity basketball practice was right after school. And I was on the junior varsity team and our um, practice was after the varsity. So I came home from school on the bus. Well, my dad at the time was working afternoons because in those days, if you had CAD equipment and new computer equipment, you ran it 24 hours a day to get your money's worth. So Ford was running the CAD department 24 hours a day, and my dad was on afternoons. So he normally would, right before he left, um, put something in the oven for dinner and leave for work. And my mom was worked um, during the day. So this day I get home from school and my dad's in the kitchen drinking a Manhattan, which was his drink of choice. And uh, he wasn't, he was drunk. He wasn't going to work and he was crying, which was an emotion I wasn't used to dealing with. And he was crying about where he went wrong as a parent. Well, he told me about what happened with my sister, and then he's crying about where he went wrong as a parent. And uh, I just wanted to avoid the situation. So I went upstairs um, to my room, and um, I, I called my mom, to arrange for um, the carpooling situation. My friend uh, Sabrina and her parents were picking us up and my mom was gonna, uh, she was picking me up to take me to basketball practice. My mom was gonna drive us home. And so I just was calling my mom at work to solidify those plans. And she asked uh, if my dad was, uh, had left already. And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> so then she wanted to talk to him. Well, I did. I, I wish to this day, I still wish that I would have just held up the, the, didn't hang up the handset and listen old school style to the phone call. But I hung up and I snuck downstairs and I kind of hid behind the corner so I could hear the conversation that my parents were going to have because I knew that it wasn't going to be that it had a potential of being bad. I've I've had enough signs over my life to know that this was a touchy situation. So my dad proceeds to tell my mom about what happened with my sister. And then I can tell he's getting angry. Well, I, I knew my mom would be angry right away as soon as she found out my sister was arrested. Um, but uh, my dad was getting angry that my mom was getting angry uh, because he felt like the police had already punished my sister enough by threatening to prosecute her. And, um, and so... You know, my antennas went up, and I knew there was potential for danger. But, you know, I, that that's as much as I knew. Uh, 
then I went into the living room and waited for um, my uh, friend to get there. And before my friend got there to pick me up, I hear the garage door open, which was my mom coming home. And so I immediately knew that there there's a potential for a problem. So let me create a distraction is what I thought. So I went and got my geometry book. I ran into the kitchen to intercept my mom when she's walking in from the garage. And um, my dad at that time was sitting in the kitchen in his bathrobe, still drinking Manhattans, which this is like an hour later. And, um, um, so I create this distraction with my mom so my parents don't talk to get my mom to help me with my math. So a couple minutes go by. She's helping me with my math. The car horn blows in the driveway. It means my ride is there. And, you know, my mom, you know, when she came in the door, she's like, Shelly, if I knew you were still home, I would have driven you to practice. Geez, I wish she would have. But, um... Anyway, um, I gave my mom a hug and a kiss, and I said, I love you, and I left. And next thing you know, probably 45 minutes later, um, my good friend um, that lived two doors down and her mom were there uh, at our school picking us up, telling us that there had been a fire at our house. So Lisa and had ended up because she didn't want to go home staying for my practice too. Cause so she was at the school too. So Lisa and I get in the car with our neighbor and ironically, this is the eighties, the song, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire that song was on the radio as we're driving and I'm questioning this neighbor about where, um, where my parents are. And they're like, well, your dad's at our house and you know, the fires, the, the fire department's there, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, where is my mom? And, um, they're like, well, she's not home from work yet. So Lisa's just kind of, singing along to this song at that point I punch her in the leg I'm like Lisa mom was home when I left and immediately she knew and I knew that there's a big problem so when we get to our neighborhood there the police have the roads blocked all the major news networks are there because like I said, it's an affluent area. So, you know, they, they, they pay attention, like it's more important than somebody else, which it's not. But um, anyway, uh, they were filming everything. And, uh, and when we got to the house, they wouldn't let my sister and I go to our house. We, they kind of forced us and my sister kind of like ran off and they corralled her into one neighbor's house. They corralled me into the neighbor that picked us up um, house. And um, I, uh, I snuck out 
at one point because it was taking too long and hit under a tree and I watched a body bag come out and then I ran back to my friend's house praying that's not what I I thought it was and um, then the police came in and told us that the body was that of my mom and uh, that was the worst day of my life. Yeah, as a young person to get that kind of news, I mean, any age to find out your your parents gone, but to to get news at that age that they died so tragically, that that had to be something that was tough. Yeah, it it, it definitely was, and you know, you you kind of you're just in this this daze, this shock. You you for days you think this is gotta be a bad nightmare i'm i'm dreaming this and it's 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 very uh life-altering so your father was out of the house when this happened he had gone to the store reportedly and ran an errand and then came home to find the house on fire did the police believe his account of what happened and did you believe it that is a good question. So, so my dad's story was he was he left the house and he was going to get heating supplies and for the cottage. And when he came home, the house was on fire and he pushed the cars the car out tried to go in and it was too hot so he went around to the basement and uh there's a we had a walkout basement and he he went in through the basement and called uh or went into the basement and called um 911 and then he went around the other side of the house and started uh putting a hose on the fire in the that's coming out of the family room well according to eyewitnesses which i wasn't there uh and there's actually video there was videotaped the night of the fire because i did see it but at one point there was six to eight foot flames coming out either side of the family room and um, even on the new 11 o'clock news that night, the um, um, they were deeming the fire an arson. But the cause of death of the 50-year-old woman inside was unknown. <laughs> so um, was TBD. Um, now, you would think anybody with, um any kind of common sense would know that if a 50-year-old woman is dead in an arson fire there's something suspicious <laughs> and um especially when the concentration of the fire and the accelerant was on the body of the deceased so, 
you would think as a coroner, you would know that even though the body, it only, my mom was burned so badly that she only had a piece of flesh the size of a dime on the back of her head that wasn't burned and her arms and legs were detached. So you would think that even though it's super hard as a, you know, as a coroner at that point, you would never, ever sign a death certificate that says natural causes. But that happened. It's troubling because if you've got an arson fire and clear signs that it was an arson, then you have to, your first assumption has to be that the person inside that's dead may be the victim of a crime as well, or at least leave it undetermined before rushing to judgment that they died of natural causes. Right, because my dad's story was when he left, my mom was um, sitting on the couch having a cigarette and that um, the weekend prior to this, because this happened on a Monday, that over the weekend prior, she was complaining of chest pains. So his story is she must have dropped the cigarette on the couch, on the newspapers, because she's an avid reader, and um, that caused the fire. That's that's his defense. But uh, the the fire investigators showed that there was gasoline used as an accelerant on the body in the family room on the on the walls, even splashed up on the walls, um, leading a trail through the kitchen. And then at some point in the kitchen, the accelerant changed from gasoline to kerosene. He probably ran out of gasoline and he used kerosene and, and poured that all the way through the rest of the way in the kitchen and down the back hallway to the garage. And it was clearly accelerant because it was splashed up on the baseboards. And, um, you know, I'm not a fire investigator, but fire investigators are trained to know what's arson and what's not arson. And they even determined the two accelerants were used. And, you know, my dad's trying to say that the, the, the accelerant they found was the coating on the 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 special brick floor that was laid in the house. Your dad's got this story. The police didn't believe it, and they arrested him a few months later in early uh, 1986. Was that a, a surprise to you, or had you come to the conclusion that he was responsible for, for killing your mom? Um, it was, it's both. Um, what happened that day is my sister and I, by this time, my dad had taken a leave of absence from work, was drinking 24 hours a day, seven days a week and never leaving the house. So this was a Friday and uh, my sister and I came home from school and my dad wasn't home, which was weird. 
Um, and there was a plate of spaghetti dumped in the sink and his car was in the garage. So we're like, hmm, well, maybe just some of his friends came to get him. And so we we went out for the night to the boys' basketball game and we came home at our curfew. And when we got home at curfew, the answer machine's flashing and the phone's ringing. So one of us is answering the phone and one of us is listening to the answer machine and they're both saying, your dad has been arrested and you need to go bail him out. (laughs) You know, we're in the middle of this and we've already lost our mother, our home, all of our worldly possessions. And now, you know, and we're still trying to keep this family as broken as it was we were trying to keep it together and even the questioning by the police the the day after the fire was lame because my dad's attorney was in the room with me and they didn't ask me the right questions because I just answered the questions they asked me and I didn't because I was used to keeping this secret. So if I just answer the questions, I'm still being honest. <laughs> and um, and so now it's February, you know, and my sister and I have been living with my dad. He's a, a, a complete drunk at the now at this time. Uh, and it's it's bad. We're li- we're living um, we're living at a house that my dad rented that actually was like a surrogate home to me growing up because my best friend Linda lived in the house and so now it's up on this hill and I l- overlook my burned out house and then make matters worse my dad would send me to the house to get canned goods out of the basement. Sending you back into to where your mom died and where, you know, this tragedy happened and you've got to go back and walk into that, that spot. Yeah, alone in the dark, in a burned out house in the fall in Michigan. It's windy, it's cold, and it's creepy and it's scary. Did your dad admit? anything during this time that he ever you know maybe when he was drunk say yeah he did it uh, i'm gonna get away with it or anything like that before he was arrested did he ever own up to it no never he he actually um has never owned up to it he went went to the grave denying it and holding on to his story I mean, his last utterance in court when he was walking out after his sentencing was, you know, you know, what am I going to do? I I didn't do this and my my girls don't believe me. It's like, well, we believe the evidence. Um, We believe our entire lifetime. We believe the threats that you've made hundreds and hundreds of times. We believe the 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 multiple times that it was so close that you, that you did this, that, um, that this isn't a surprise. You know, we believe, we believe the hell that we lived in 
And um, we also believe that the problem was at that time, my sister and I were being, we, no one was telling us anything because we were minors. Literally, we were reading about what was going on with my dad's, with the case in the newspapers. Or, or I would eavesdrop, like the, the, the bit about my, the, how badly my mom is burned. That was information I gleaned from an eavesdropped conversation of my dad um, talking to uh, his attorney. So I didn't have enough information. So I, I had this internal battle going on is... Well, his story is sort of believable, but you don't have any evidence. I didn't know at the time about the two accelerants. I didn't know at the time about a lot of things. So you have this great loss and you're trying to, you know, you're, I'm a teenager. I don't want to be homeless and an orphan. So, of course, I wanted to believe my dad's story and it was somewhat believable. It was somewhat, you know, your gut is saying, um, this is all bullshit. And your heart is saying, well, this could be true. You know, he, you know, he does love you, doesn't he? And, you know, it's just this, this weird internal battle. And so it's, it's, it's really hard to decipher. And, so what happened was he he got arrested in February. My sister and I literally had to bail him out, and we we became we my sister more than me. My sister ended up became his target, and he was more volatile than ever because he's he's drinking nonstop at this time. He wasn't even working, and we're living with him. You know. Woo. There's no CPS. There's there's no help. There's no nothing. We're we're living with him. I'm I'm stopping um, my dad from from killing my sister. I'm I mean it's it's just it's a long story. That's why that's why the book is is really long. <laughs> let's let's talk about the book if we can. Um, this whole awful experience, as we mentioned led you to to write a book and, and and before we actually hit the book let me ask you this what happened to you and your sister when your dad went to prison who did you stay with friends okay we um i i had um extricated myself my senior year of high school i went to live with um my best friend at the time and moved to california with her family and so I, I, I couldn't handle, there was so much pressure as a teenager, you know, I, I'm dealing with the grief, I'm dealing with all this loss, I'm, I'm dealing with all these things. My sister at this point is older, so she had graduated high school and, you know, she's working and she's going to community college and she's, she's. She's gone all the time because she doesn't want to be at home either because she's the target anyway. So I didn't blame her. And she basically moved in with her best friend at the time. And um, so 
So I moved in with, uh, I moved to California my senior year. Uh, My dad actually had to call me to come home to testify. And it was when I testified that I learned all this evidence. There's even, there's even more evidence that I haven't even talked about that I learned at the prosecutor's office two days before I had to testify for the prosecution, which I didn't know I was testifying for the prosecution. And I, I, I spent, I have like a hundred pages of testimony. That's how long, that's how long my testimony is. Cause I, I went and printed it off and I had to go home with my dad that night. And I, the, the prosecution was trying to use me to prove first degree murder. And here I am, a 17-year-old kid, and and nobody is is even concerned that they're using me to to prove first-degree murder, and they're sending me home with the murderer. That's a, a strange situation. You think someone would have said, hey, let's take her out of the home so she's not in danger or something like that. Yeah, you you would think, but there was there was there was none of that. It was it was mind blowing. It's mind blowing to me now when I look back on it. I'm just like, how did nobody think of this? <laughs> awful, so. awful. And and as we mentioned, that led eventually to you coming up with this book from all of this horrible stuff you went through called Beautiful Ashes. Tell us a little bit about the book and how hard was it to to tell this story? Well, it's a little cathartic, actually. I mean, I, I, I actually went back to therapy. I, I had gone through um, therapy in my, in my mid thirties to, uh, I finally got good trauma therapy that was helping me with my depression and PTSD that was caused from from all these traumas and there's even more traumas in the, that I talk about in the book that, that I'm not going to give, give away that make this period in my life even more traumatic. And, um, uh, and then, you know, you can imagine that after my mom passed away, things got even worse for, for years really. And just one thing happened after another thing, after another, after another, after another. And I endure, I've even endured long-term illnesses and, and other traumas in my life. And I, and I, I, but I'm at this point in my life where everything is okay. And, um, and I, I accept, I accept the good, the bad and the ugly as, as things that gave me opportunities for growth and that, you know, the purpose in life for me is, is to overcome adversity. And I wanted to write this book so I could show just how much adversity can one person um, endure and, and still come out the other side and be happy and, you know, and I'm not even, I'm not even healthy right now, and, but I'm still happy. I, I am grateful for life. I am, I am grateful for um, the beauty 
that that comes with with good times and bad times. I've I've learned so much in my journey. I want to share that with people and give people hope and show them that there is a path to healing if you have you know, if you have big traumas in your life or even small traumas in your life, you know, that that everybody there that there's some equality really in adversity. I think it it has to do with individuals' um, abilities to for growth and what we need. You know, I I really feel like we are all equal, but we're all different, and we all have uh, we all have different personalities and characteristics. Which get, which you know, for me. I you would think on this podcast that I don't have a problem with public speaking, but if I it's easier for me to do this on a podcast than it is for me to stand up in a group of a thousand people. And um I have I'm I'm totally relaxed in this situation, but in that situation I I'm really nervous. And um you know, we all have different um you know, for some people, they're not phased by either. Like my husband, he doesn't care if it's one person or a thousand per- people. He's he's like, well, if I'm prepared, I'm prepared. And I'm like, okay, well, you're not nervous? He's like, no. You know, so different people have strengths and weaknesses. So we have to be tested and tried in different ways to become the best us we can be. I have a different philosophy, but I think it's because of all the adversity I've faced. Well, it sounds like you have a real survivor story and hopefully people that are out there that have some situation they're going through, maybe your your book can be some kind of inspiration for them. Well, that that's what I'm hoping because, well, I, I'll touch on it a little bit. I won't give away how it happened, but, uh, you know, that year that I was 15, it was a hell of a year in July of that year my my parents to my grandmother was from Scotland and um my my parents and my grandmother and my sister and I went on a month long vacation to the UK and visited family well in the south of england you know i was 15 at the time and my sister was 17 well it's legal to drink there at 14 and so my mom's cousin had sons that were um, were my age and Lisa's age. And we went to a pub. And, well, I, I became a victim there. I'm not, not going to go into the whole, the whole thing, but I, I became a victim there. So, so I was um, raped in July. My mother was murdered in October. Then my dad was arrested for her murder in February. So he had bought tickets. My parents annually would go to Acapulco with a group of their friends and meet up with acquaintances that they had met over the years at the same hotel in Acapulco. Well, my dad decided that he was going to surprise us with tickets to Acapulco. Well, I think the police found out he was leaving to go to Mexico and arrested him so he couldn't go. 
And so at the last minute, my dad sent my sister and I with our older cousins. Well, I had gotten molested there when I was 11. And the same guy that molested me at 11 ended up raping me at 15. So in that year, I had all those things happen to me. And then things just kept snowballing from there. Well, it sounds like you've come up through the other side and you're you're on your way to, to, if not fully healing, to at least having some kind of growth. And um, you mentioned getting counseling and, and dealing with some of the stuff you've been through. And, and I think someone out there listening is going to have something awful that they're going through and, and your book could definitely be an inspiration. Where can people find Beautiful Ashes? Well, it's actually, you can pre-order it now on uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, pretty much any any online store. Uh, you go to my website, which uh, is uh, www.beautifulashesmemoir.com. And if you go there, there's a pre-order link. Um, and it also tells you a little bit more about the story. I, I have some... Um, I have some uh, a bio of myself, and I have some other um, you know, basically life lessons that I that I learned, and and some other things on the website. If you want to check that out, well, I hope people check the book out. Uh, your story is is very inspirational uh, of someone that's been through such horrible tragedy to be here now talking about it and just it sounds like a real survivor story and i appreciate coming on to discuss it with us well thanks for having me mike thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family i'd like to thank sunny landon for writing and research assistance in this episode as we wrap up i'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast it's called blood guts and booze be sure to give it a listen We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Can't get enough true crime? I feel like everybody has one of those cases. It may even be what really got me into true crime. Do you love the paranormal? I guess clearly he's making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out if your soul tastes nice. Come join Blood, Guts, and Booze. Uh, I feel like this case is pretty well known, uh, but a lot of people don't realize just how twisted this case really is. Every Sunday. They started feeling really bad for her spirit, right? Her little, her little ghosty. So they decided to invite her into their house permanently. <laughs> nope. As we talk about your worst nightmares and things that go bump in the night.